Now, we are, today we are going to get back onto the journey that we've been going on for the last 12 months. Uh, for those who are new, we have been going through a preaching series which has already lasted us about 12 months. It's called A Blazing Grace, Another Look at the Old Testament Story. And this is what we've covered so far, the beginning, the family, the exodus, the land, the kings, and then when we went to, we're about to go into the exile, both of your pastors went into exile into different parts of Australia and overseas. And so we've been on halt for the last um, few weeks, and we've had some great sermons from Blair and Marty and, and a few other people, some young people as well, which is really fantastic. Now, today we're going to pick back up in the exile, and we're going to be looking at the book of Isaiah. Now, I must admit, I was a little bit daunted when I got the preaching topic, the book of Isaiah, because it's quite a long book. Um, but I've come up with a message that really leapt off the pages to me today, and I really believe it's going to be a blessing for you. It's called Firm in Faith, and let's ask God to be with us as we um, dive into the Word today. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we just thank you for your blessings, Lord, and Lord, we thank you for the Bible. Without the Bible, we would be um, sailing through life without any direction and no idea what's going to come in the future, Lord. And so we thank you for um, the book that reveals to us how we can live, but also reveals to us so much about you, Lord. And I just pray that as we dive into Isaiah today, that, that just as this message le- left off the pages for me, Lord, may it leap off the pages for everyone else. And may we leave here being more um, desirous to put our trust and our faith completely in you. May your spirit fill us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you might be wondering, why would we even bother, bother studying the book of Isaiah? It's a big book pretty confusing at times, and I don't know about about you, but for me, it's a book that's been quite neglected in my own personal Bible study. And I want to begin by sharing with you a reason why we should study the book of Isaiah. And the reason is that the whole of the New Testament, in large part, views the story of Jesus through the lens of the book of Isaiah. And let me show you that this morning. Let's go to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to have the verse on the screen. And we're going to look at the story of Jesus' birth. And just prior to this, this, what we're going to read here, we see that, um, that Mo, uh, Mary became pregnant with, with Jesus, and um, Joseph was going to put her away quietly, but an angel came to, um, to Joseph and encouraged him that this was from God. And at the end, it says, uh, Matthew writes down this and says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that prophet was, who do you think? It was Isaiah. So the birth of Jesus. Now let's go to the next book of the Bible, Mark, and we're going to go to the very first verse of the book of Mark. And it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. Mark doesn't even get through the second verse of his story of Jesus without quoting from the book of Isaiah. And here we see that the preparation for the Messiah is seen through the lens of Isaiah. Now let's look at Jesus' ministry, Luke chapter 4. And in here we see Jesus went to his, um, his, his hometown of Nazareth and he goes into a synagogue and he gets up there to read from the scriptures and they hand him none other than the scroll of Isaiah. And it says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, reading directly from Isaiah, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news 
to the poor. And at the end, he said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. So we see that Luke understands the, the story of Jesus through Isaiah, and Jesus himself interprets his own life through the writings of Isaiah. Let's go to um, um, John, and we look at Jesus' reception by the people that he ministered to. It says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what you heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And let's finally look at Jesus' death. In Acts chapter 8, you might remember the story of Philip that we preached on probably a year and a half ago now, a long time back. And we see that Philip is on a, on a journey being led by the Spirit of God, and he comes across this Ethiopian man. And it says, So Philip ran up to him and heard him reading from none other than Isaiah the prophet, and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Speaking directly about the events surrounding the crucifixion um, of Jesus. And as you go through the story, it says that, that Philip began with that verse and he preached to the Ethiopian, he preached Jesus. So we see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Jesus' birth, Jesus' preparation, Jesus' ministry, reception, and death is viewed in the New Testament through the lens of the book of Isaiah. And if you go to the next the book, the book of Romans, you'll find around about 20 quotes directly from the book of Isaiah as well, and it continues on through the New Testament. And so one of the reasons why we should study Isaiah in the first place is that it's so central and foundational to the gospel story that we find in the New Testament. And with that, I just want to put out a challenge to you from the very beginning, that if you're someone who, like me, has sort of neglected the book of Isaiah, I challenge you to take up the challenge and try to understand and learn for yourself what are the messages that God has given us through the book of Isaiah, and why were the apostles, why was Jesus so concerned with this book? Now, one of the challenges of the book of Isaiah is that when you read through, a large majority of it is just prophecies about this or this or this or this, but the story is often missed behind Isaiah's life. And to put it in contrast, when you read through another one of the prophets, for example, um, Jonah, when you look at the, the prophecies that he gave, it's very easy to understand them. Because as you read through, you understand what's happening to Jonah, you understand who he's talking to, you understand the big picture that's surrounding that, and when you understand the story, you can better understand the prophecies, and then you can better apply it to your personal life as well. And so this is one of the struggles that I've always had with the book of Isaiah. There's so many fantastic one-liners that I'm sure you treasure from the book of Isaiah. But do you know the story behind those? And so today we're going to be examining not just all the prophecies of Isaiah, but we're going to be looking specifically at the story of Isaiah. And I want to begin by giving you a little bit of a, a broad picture of the book. Now, we're not going to preach in every verse, um, but I want you to understand at least the basics of what happens in the book of Isaiah. Now, I've divided Isaiah up into five different sections. Now, you can do this a number of different ways. This made sense to me. Section 1, section 3, and section 5 don't have a lot to do with the actual story. We have the introduction um, to Isaiah's book and the calling of Isaiah, which is a bit of story there. Uh, in the middle, we have about 20 chapters of the judgments upon the surrounding nations, as well as some encouragement and hope thrown in there as well. There are a few little interesting things. For example, you might be familiar where Isaiah is asked 
to strip down naked as a prophecy to the Egyptians, and he goes around not wearing anything for three years. Now, we're not going to be talking about that today, but you do find that in the middle of Isaiah. And also, when you go to the end of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66, you see one of the most beautiful um, prophecies about the coming Messiah. And we see that the coming Messianic kingdom is on full display, and we have these beautiful things about the new earth and about what Jesus is going to do when he comes to this earth. What we are going to focus on today is not everything, but specifically we're going to focus on the story. And the, main, the bulk of the story re- revolves around section 2 and 4 in the book of Isaiah. And both of these, in both of these we find a crisis moment that comes upon the nation of Judah. In um, crisis situation number 1, we're going to see that Israel and Syria are going to team up against um, Judah, and Judah is going to find themselves, the king of Judah, the king Ahaz is going to find himself at, at the point of nearly, nearly being destroyed, and Isaiah comes in at that moment. Crisis point number two is um, King Hezekiah, and again we see this crisis point, the, the kingdom of Assyria is coming in to destroy and to take out um, Judah, and especially in Jerusalem, and again we see Isaiah points up right at that, that moment to Point these kings to God in heaven. Now, the, the message that I want you to take home with you today is this. So if you forget everything, if you forget the structure, you forget um, where the, the quotes are in the New Testament, I want you to remember this. And that is, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Now, we're going to find that this is taken directly from one of the chapters in Isaiah. Now, before we dive straight into those two um, crisis situations, let's just review the, the purpose that God had for Israel. And we're going to read Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. So this is right back when we began the family. And we see that it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, All the world had gone astray, but God found one man, Abram, and says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the promise to Abraham, the promise to this covenant um, family was, at least here, threefold. That God would give them land. God would then fill the land with their descendants. But not just that. God would then use them to be a blessing to the rest of the world. And we see that come out in Isaiah chapter 19. Now, this is, you've got to remember the kingdoms of Egypt and the kingdoms of Assyria, these were the big enemies of, of Israel. Remember, they were slaves in Egypt, and soon we're going to see the Assyrians kind of come down and try and wipe them out. But let's have a look at what God's plan was for those nations. In Isaiah chapter 19, it says this, In that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Do we see an exclusive God here? We see a God who is wanting to extend his hand to the enemies of the Egyptians, who are, who are down to the south, and extend his hands up to the Assyrians, and he wanted to bring them all into his family. We serve a God who take, cares for each and every one of us. And and geographically, it makes sense that God put them in Israel, because Israel is really the doorway to the th- three of the big continents on earth. 
It's the doorway to, to Europe. It's the, to Europe up to the, the, north, the northwest. It's the doorway to Asia, to the east. And it's the doorway down to Africa. And so we, we get this picture that God was wanting to establish his people who knew about him, who experienced him, who was, knew about God's law, knew what it meant to follow God. And then this would almost, in a contagious way, take, um, envelop the, the nations around them and eventually through to the ends of the world. But when we get to the book of Isaiah, we see that something drastic has gone wrong. And we're going to go to the very first chapter. Some of the verses will be taken from the scripture, but as we just jump through a little bit, we're going to be putting them on the screen. Isaiah chapter 1, we see that um, God, speaking through Isaiah, is looking out at, at, at his people, these people who had such a huge purpose for their life, and he says this, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? Does it sound like they're living up to their high calling here? It gets more graphic. It goes on to say, The whole head is sick. And the whole heart is faint, from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Here we see God describing his people as a person with a high calling, but this person is struck down with an illness. From head to toe, there is nothing sound in them, and that illness is the illness of sin. And as a result, Isaiah is sent to warn the people of Israel, of Judah, that if they continue in this path, eventually they will be destroyed along with the sins that they will not let go of their hands. So let's now go to number one of our crisis situations. And I want you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them there, to Isaiah chapter 7. So Isaiah chapter 7, and we're going to encounter a king by the name of King Ahaz. So Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 1, and it says this. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, reason the king of Syria and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Don't you love that imagery there? Isaiah has excellent imagery, and he says that they were so terrified that their heart shook, just like the trees shake in, in the wind. Now, we have to ask ourselves two questions here. Firstly, who is this King Ahaz? And what is he doing that is, he's found himself in this situation? And secondly... What was it about these two kingdoms that got them so terrified? Now, not all of these details we'll find in the book of Isaiah, but in some other parts of Scripture, we're going to find some of these details fleshed out a little bit more. And we're going to see why the kingdom of Syria and the kingdom of, of um, Israel, which is the northern kingdom, who, should have been, who is their brothers, was so terrifying to the people of Judah at this time, and especially of King Ahaz. So turn with me back in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 28. So 
So we're looking at who was Ahaz and why were they so terrified? What's the crisis situation that we see taking place here? Okay, Second Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 1 says this, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. Wouldn't you love to be a king at 20? There's probably a few 20-year-olds here. But here, suddenly, he is on the throne. And it says, And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Now, if you remember the sermon, last two sermons that David did, he talked about the kings of Israel up the north and the kings of Judah down the south. And the kings of Israel, do you remember what they were like? Were they good kings? Basically, every single one. It was just this downward slope of great wickedness, and basically no one was following in the ways of God. Now, in comparison, the kings of the south, kings of Judah, what were they like? Were they good or were they bad? Bit of a roller coaster. They were good. One king was good, and then you have a terrible king, and then a great king, and then a terrible king. And here we see King Ahab is described as following in the ways of the kings of Isaiah, which means things are going pretty bad. And if you continue reading those few verses there, you're going to see that, that he was making all these idols and, and to, to the Baal. He even sacrificed his children, that, that thing that was, that was so abominable in the eyes of God. He sacrificed his children to these foreign pagan gods as, as a way to seek help in, in the situation that he finds himself in. So that's King Ahaz this young, rebellious king who's sitting on the throne of Judah. Now let's look at why they were so terrified by these two northern kingdoms coming at them. Let's pick it up in verse 5. It says, Therefore the Lord his God gave him into the hand of the king of Syria, who defeated him and took captive a great number of his people and brought them to Damascus. He was also given into the hand of the king of Israel, who struck him with a great force. For Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, killed how many? 120,000 people from Judah in one day. All of them men of valor, because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. And Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, killed Maasiah, the king's son, and Azrikam, um, the commander of the palace, and Elkanah, the, ki- the next in authority of the king, were also killed as well. So let's just... Get that in the mind, what happened. So we have, let's start firstly with Syria. So Syria is this, this foreign king, some of these people that should have been driven out of the land. And in comes Syria, headed up by King Razin. And what he did, he defeated the king, not completely, but in some of the battles that they had. And he took a large number of the people from Judah off um, as captives back to, um, to, to the Syrian empire. Now, Syrian king is now teaming up with Israel. And let's look at what Israel did. Now remember, Israel, these are the brothers of these are the brothers of the um of, of the people in Judah. This is these are the people that these are the, like the twelve tribes, the twelve brothers, Joshua, uh, Joseph and his brothers, eleven other brothers, these are descendants. These are the people that should be friends. Israel comes down and kills in a single day one hundred and twenty thousand of the of the people of, of Judah. Or, and, they weren't ju- and they were the men of valor. This is the army. So the army is just devastated at this point. In, in, included in this, we see that the king's son is killed. We see that the commander who would have been someone who would have counseled the king in the, in the palace is killed. We see also that um, the next in line to the throne is killed. And remember, this is a young king. Young kings would have been relying upon the people around them 
to help them in these sorts of difficult situations. But here, all of his support network is quickly being eroded beneath, beneath him. And so let's go back to where we were in the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah chapter, chapter 7. And let's see what, Isaiah, what message Isaiah has for this scared young king of Judah. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 3. It says, so, so, so at this point, a lot of Judah has been destroyed and these two nations have come together. They're right at Jerusalem's, um, well, they're going to be soon at Jerusalem's doorstep and that's the next object for them to take over. Isaiah says this to King Ahaz, verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son at the end of the conduit at the upper pool on the highway of the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, and do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of those two smoldering stumps of firebrand. So when Ahaz is faced with this, this challenge which seems impossible, that is far beyond anything he could, he could even hope to push back against, what message does God have to give to him through Isaiah the prophet? Basically, he says, do nothing. Wait. Don't make a fuss. Don't jump up and down. Don't do anything rash. Don't be afraid. Do nothing and wait for God to deliver you from this situation. Now, is it easier when, in your life when God says, when you come to him with your problem, he says, all right, you need to do this, 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 or this. Is that easier? Or do you think it's easier when God says, just wait? What do you, what do you find easier? Is waiting harder? I think in my life, sometimes when God tells you to wait, it is often one of the most difficult um, situations in your life. You might be praying with God, praying for wisdom in some life decision that you're wanting to, to make. And the answer that you get back is, wait. You might be searching for a job and you've, you've put so many resumes in and you just don't think that you're ever going to get work and you're praying with God and He says, wait. Or maybe you're looking for that life partner and you've been single for a long time and you're wondering who that person's going to be and God says, Wait. Sometimes waiting is the hardest instruction that God can give us in our lives. And maybe this whole concept of waiting that we see here forms some of the background of one of my favorite verses in the book of Isaiah, and it certainly reminds us of this situation where Isaiah says these words. He says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So here Isaiah is speaking to these nations of, 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 of Jacob and Israel, the southern and, the, and the, this, the people of God. And he's saying, why do you feel like you're disregarded from, from God? Remember, God is the creator God. God is the one who formed the stars. God is the one who formed the mountains. He's the God who is on our side. goes on to say, He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But then it says, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up 
with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. And here Isaiah comes to this troubled young king with a message, just wait. But why should he wait? It goes on to talk, say, let's go to verse um, 7 in chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 7, it says, Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, speaking of these plans of these kings, and it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason. In other words, this nation Syria, the capital of that is Damascus, and the king is, is reason, but at the end of the day, it's just one dude in, who's, who's up against you and is angry at you. It goes down to verse 9, and it says, And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah, who's Pekah, this, this other king. So God's basically saying, why are you so afraid? It's basically just two dudes that are upset with you. I am the king of kings. I am the creator God. I hold all things in my hands, and I am able to help you. And then Isaiah gives these words, which are our key words for our sermon this morning. The end of verse 9 says, Isaiah says to Ahaz, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. In other words, Isaiah is saying, God is your source of strength. God is your refuge of safety. God is your place to find security. And if you seek for that anywhere else, you will not find firmness in your experience. But if you seek it in God, if your faith is firm with Him, then you'll be as firm as a rock in Jesus. And never has this message been more relevant than it is today. If I think about my life over the last few weeks, I got my new um, sort of pay chart in the, in the mail, and it, it gives you a list of what I get, and then it says superannuation contributions. We, we set ourselves up so in the future, when we finish work, we have that to rely on. And then I went on this trip over to New Zealand, and beforehand, I logged onto the computer, and I bought myself some travel insurance, and just in case something goes wrong, just in case my... My, my phone gets stolen or something, I have that backup. And then I went and registered my car when I got home, and, had to, and there's like um, third-party insurance, there's comprehensive insurance, and then I went and went on my computer, and it says, your computer has not been backed up for 100 days, and I thought, man, I need to get on top of this, so I back up my computer onto my hard drive, and we, we like to, we live in this sort of bubble-wrapped society where we put all these, these circles of protection around ourselves and... We create this facade of safety in our lives. And we think we've got this that we're trusting and this we're trusting will be okay. But the message of Isaiah is, it doesn't matter what insurance you have, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So let's see what King Ahaz does with this message. We're going to jump back to Second. Chronicles chapter 28. 2 Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 16. So remember the two kings that are at Jerusalem's doorstop are the kings of Israel and the kings of, of Syria. Verse 16, 28 verse 16. At that time, King Ahab sent to the king of Assyria for help. What did God ask him to do? Wait. Do nothing. And the first thing he does is he goes, he goes, sends some messenger off to this even bigger nation, and he says, come and help me. And how does he do that? It says in verse 
20. Well, let's just read what it says happened in verse 20. It says, So Tiglath-Pileser, who is the, the king of the Assyrians, it says, um, The king of Assyria came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. Okay? He goes out and he calls Assyria, Please come and help us. And it goes on to say in the, in the next verse, For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and a portion of the king and of princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. What is Ahaz doing here? He's taking out an insurance plan. He goes off and he gets all this money from the the temple, all this money from the kingdom's treasury, and he goes and he bribes King Assyria to come through and to smash the kingdoms that he was terrified. Now, the king of Assyria did do that. But afterwards, he thought, man, there's a bit of money down there in, in the nation of Judah, Maybe I'll go get that, the rest of that money that I didn't get in this bribe that he, he gave me. And pretty soon we find, um, we find the Assyrian nation now on the doorsteps of, 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 of Judah. They're taking over the fortified cities. And soon we're going to find them right at the doorstep of, um, of Jerusalem. And not only does he do that, when we read through to verse 22, it says, In the time of his distress... He became yet more faithless to the Lord, the same, the same King Ahaz. Now remember, what did we say we need to be? As I said, be firm in faith. But he's going in the other direction. So he's become more faithless. And he goes on to say, For he sacrificed the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, Because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of Israel. So the Syrians, this great enemy, God, um, instead of turning to God, he says, well, maybe if they beat me, their gods might be stronger. And he goes, worships them, and it further, um, it further worsens the problem that King Ahaz has. And not too far down the track, we find he dies, and his king steps, I mean, his son steps up to reign in his place. He put trust in everything apart from the one place That really mattered. And if we keep reading on, we see he even closed up the temple, destroyed the things within there, and put all his trust in everything but God. Let's now go to the crisis situation number two. Now, it won't take quite as long to get through this one. Remember, there's two sort of primary stories that jump out when you read through the book of Isaiah. The second one concerns the king by the name of Hezekiah. Now, of all the kings, I think King Hezekiah is probably one of my very favorites. So we'll go back to, in Second Chronicles, we'll stay there. And let's go to verse, chapter 29, starting in verse 1. So Second Chronicles, chapter 29, verse 1, it says, Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old. Again, a young uh, king who had been brought up um, in, with the example of his father who had done everything but put his faith in God. And it says, And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother was, was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And it says, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. Isn't it good when we read through and you find that finally a king is doing what is right? And this is what he did. It says in verse 3, In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. King Hezekiah comes into the scene and has a great symbolic act of saying, my kingdom is going to be different to that of my father's. He opens up the connection between his nation and God in the temple. 
And as you read through the story, he starts to systematically undo the things that the kings before him had done. He destroys the, the temple, the, the, the places of worship in the high places. He destroys the Asherah, he, the pillars that have been set up around the place. And he restores the Passover, and, and the nation is once again trusting in God. In, the sec, in 2 Kings, it gives this testimony about Hezekiah. It says, He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. What a testimony. Do you want that to be the story of your life? If your name was being written down in the history books, would you like them to say that he trusted in the Lord more than, or she trusted in the Lord more than all those who went before them? This is a person whose life was characterized by being firm in faith. Now, as the story unfolds, things are going well for, for, um, for Hezekiah in some, degree, in some ways, but that kingdom of Assyria that, that Hezekiah's father had cozied up with to try and get um, help in his time of trouble becomes a bigger and a bigger threat for the people of God. And pretty soon we see, what's called, his name, he's called the Rabbik Shah, who's one of these high-ranking military officials, has... They've, they've, they've destroyed all of the fortified cities in, in Judah. Judah is basically um, on the edge of complete collapse. And we see this high-ranking military official walks up to the, 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 the capital, Jerusalem, and he goes before it, and he meets with some of the three of the officials who come from um, Hezekiah's palace, and he has a message for them, and this is the message that he gives to them. Let's go to Isaiah now. Chapter 36. So we've jumped through through a little bit, but we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 36. This is that second section that we're talking about, Isaiah chapter 36. And we're going to see what did the kingdom of Assyria, what message did they have for the people of Jerusalem? Chapter 36, and starting in verse 4. It says, And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Bit of a threat there. Verse 5. Do you think that mere words are strategy for power and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Here we see the kingdom of Assyria has come up to Jerusalem and they are taking on this trust that Hezekiah has so firmly placed in the God of heaven. And then as, as the story unfolds, we see these three officials... They, they, don't, they think that the kingdom's going get, to get, get a bit worried by this person speaking these threatening words. And so they say, just, just speak in Aramaic. We can understand you. Don't let the, the warriors on the war hear you. And the guy's like, I'm not going to have any of, any of that. Verse, verse 12, he says, But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the war who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Now these, are, this is, these are not small threats, nor are they empty threats. This is what the king of Assyria had been doing all over the place, coming and besieging cities until they run out of water, they run out of food, and pretty soon they are in starvation and they can be taken over. And so this threat gets placed against Jerusalem and what's going to happen to, um, to them. Let, let's read on a few of the more, the more of the threats because it, it, it continues to to escalate. Chapter 36, verse 13. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, 
hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. So all the people on the wall are now listening. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Now, if the king of Ahaz was, if their hearts were trembling like the trees in the field, you can just imagine what, what the people on the wall are doing when they're hearing the king of Assyria. Maybe they were hoping that Hezekiah would give in and, and surrender to these Assyrians instead of having to eat their own dung and drink their own urine like he was threatening them with. And so they, the, the three men, they go into Hezekiah with their clothes torn, and Hezekiah goes straight to the temple of God. Such a contrast between King Ahaz. He hears about this, he goes straight to the temple of God, and he says, go and send for Isaiah, and tell him what is happening, and tell him to pray that God will deliver us. Now, let's go to verse 6 of... I think we're in the wrong... Okay. Chapter 37 and verse 6. Now, this is the message that Isaiah had for the scared nation, city of Jerusalem. It's not so much a nation as much as a city at this stage. Um, chapter 37 and verse 6. It says, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me, Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and it return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Now, does this situation seem similar to what happened to Ahaz? Here we see in both situations, Judah um, has been destroyed in many different ways, and we see Jerusalem is, is about to be taken. We see these kings are in great fear, and in both situations... We see Isaiah comes to both of these kings and essentially says, do nothing, just wait. And to Ahaz, he says, if you, do not put your, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all, and basically says the same thing to Hezekiah. And what is Hezekiah going to do? But it doesn't end there. The threats keep coming. And the king of Assyria now, this is the most powerful person in, I guess, the then-known world. He is, is nearby, and he hears about the... This, the stubbornness of the people of Jerusalem, and he sends a messenger to them with a letter for King Hezekiah, and this is what it says. If I can find where that is. Um, okay, here we go. It says, thus, in verse 37, verse 10, thus, says, thus shall you speak to Hezekiah of Judah, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. It goes on to say, this other nation trusted in their gods and we destroyed them. This other nation trusted in their gods and we destroyed them. And who do you think you are to think that you are anything different? Here we have the biggest threat that has ever come upon Jerusalem is there. And you can imagine with trembling hands, Hezekiah is reading this threatening letter. 
Now, what he does in response, I believe, is a model that we can imitate in any situation that we find in ourselves where we face things like the armies that Hezekiah, whether they're huge like that or whether they're small, this is what Hezekiah does. Isaiah chapter 37 and verse 14. Hezekiah received a letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, house of the Lord, and he spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. You can just imagine everything has been in his kingdom is being destroyed, and he goes into the temple and he gets down on his knees and he spreads this letter that has been put before him before God. And he pleads with and he pours out his heart that the God of heaven, the creator God, will come and rescue him in this situation. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Do you want to see what God does in response? Isaiah chapter 37 and verse 36. It says, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of Assyria. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. 185,000 um, 185, warriors of the Assyrians struck down overnight. And what did Hezekiah do? He did nothing. He waited and put his trust in, in God. So what does it mean for us today to be people who are firm in faith? Well, I think to be firm in faith, it means that we need to be people who live a life like Hezekiah did. It doesn't matter how big the army is that's facing you. You're trusting that God has a bigger army. It doesn't matter how strong that army is. You're trusting that God is, is stronger. It doesn't matter how impossible the way forward looks. You're trusting in a God who with him all things are possible. It means that when God says wait, you wait with quiet faith, faith, trusting in God, putting aside fear until God, like it promises in Isaiah 40, renews your strength and makes you rise up on wings like eagles. It means you take your, prom- your problem, whatever it might be, like Hezekiah, and you get down on your knees before God and you spread that before Him. And you don't keep that worrying in yourself, but you give it over to Him. You trust in Him, and you trust that He can take care of it. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe your marriage is going through a difficult time. Get down with your, with your spouse on your knees and spread that before God. Maybe you're going through a difficult time financially. Take those bills and get down on your knee and, knees and spread those before God. Maybe you're a young person who has... He has no idea what you're going to do with the future. Take your plans and spread them before God. If there's a temptation that you're struggling with, an addiction, whatever that might be, spread that before God and trust in Him to give you victory over it. Maybe there's a calling. Maybe you feel God is calling you to ministry. Maybe you feel God is calling you to be baptized like we're going to see this afternoon. Maybe God is calling you to to share your faith with someone else, but you're fearful Take that fear and spread it before God and put your trust in Him. 
And ultimately, the army that we face is not the Syrians, it's not the Egyptians, it's not the Jebusites, it's not the Philistines, but ultimately the, the army that each of us face is the army of sin. And when you read through the, the book of Isaiah, while there's these, these dangers from without, the biggest danger that is clearly put forward is the danger that's within, the danger within us, the rebellious and stubborn heart that each of us have, but by the grace, but by the grace of God. And with this, just like all those other things, we need to get down on our knees, spread our sins before God, spread our life, be vulnerable before God, and put our faith in Him. And we trust in the promise that Isaiah gave in chapter 53, and four, verse 4 to 6. That's one of my favorite passages in Isaiah, and I didn't think I could preach in Isaiah without going here at least once. <clears throat> Speaking of what Jesus would do, he says, says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Put your faith in God to deal with your problems without, but put your faith with God in God to deal with your problem within. And ultimately, that problem is the problem of sin, and Jesus has already carried it for us upon the cross. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we just thank you for the great gift that you've given us on the cross. <clears throat> when we look at the people of Israel, when we see that, that they were a people who had, that in them there was no soundness, you said, from the, head of, from the hair of their head to their, their toes, Lord, they were sick, and it was like they have oozing wounds, Lord, because of their sin. Lord, we recognize that we are the same. And Lord, our natural tendency is to trust in all the little things that we have around us, Lord, and not to trust in you. But Lord, we want to be people who are firm. We want to be people who live lives that are secure, that are lives of strength, lives of security, Lord. And you tell us that if you want to be firm, we need to be firm in faith. So Father, we pray that, that as we spread our things before you, Lord, and I encourage every person in this room who has something that now want to spread before you, Lord, take these things, give us courage, give us boldness, give us the patience to wait, and most importantly, give us faith. Faith for our problems outside, Lord, and ultimately, faith from our problems within. We pray that you be with us today in Jesus' name.